you have your Bible this morning, we are in Revelation chapter 21. And this is the part of the study we've been waiting for, we've been looking forward to this whole year, Revelation 21 and 22. Well, I heard about Miss Johnson's third grade Sunday school class. They were learning about heaven one day. And she told them all about the angels and the streets of gold and the crystal sea. Toward the end of the lesson, she came to the most important part. And she said, now children, how does somebody get to heaven? Of course, little hands popped up all over that Sunday school classroom. Tommy answered first. He said, well, my dad says God loves a cheerful giver. So you probably have to put a lot of money in the offering plate to go to heaven. Miss Johnson, of course, corrected him. And she said, no, Tommy, you can't buy your way into heaven. And then she called on little Susie, who had her hand up. She said, well, teacher, I think you've got to do more good things than bad things to go to heaven. Miss Johnson, of course, shook her head and she said, sorry, Susie, that's not what the Bible says. We're saved by grace, not by works. There was one little boy in the back of the classroom, not really participating at all. And Miss Johnson, being the eagle-eyed teacher that she was, called on little Johnny. And she said, hey, Johnny, there in the back, what do you think? How does somebody get to heaven? And Johnny didn't even bat an eye. He said, oh, that's easy, teacher. You've got to be dead. <laughs> And technically, uh, little Johnny's right, isn't he? Unless the Lord takes us off of this earth by way of rapture, uh, death is the only one-way ticket. Reminds me of the saying that I've often heard, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Reminds me of another cute story that I heard. It's about a preacher uh, who was uh, preaching about going to heaven. And boy, he was getting riled up in the middle of his sermon, and he asked the crowd, he said, how many of you out there to, today want to go to heaven? And of course, hands went up all over the auditorium, but the preacher noticed that there was one little boy sitting up in the balcony who didn't raise his hand at all, and that kind of irked the preacher. And so he preached a little bit more, and he went stronger the second time. How many of you here tonight want to go to heaven? Whoosh, hands went up all over the auditorium, and that little boy didn't move an inch. And that really bothered that preacher. He was disturbed, so he pointed up to that young boy. He said, son, why aren't you raising your hand? Don't you want to go to heaven? And the little boy said, yeah, but I thought you was getting up a load to go tonight. <laughs> now, recent Barna and Gallup polls show that an overwhelming majority of Americans, nearly 85%, believe that there is some kind of heaven, some kind of life after death. But when you ask the next question, how does one get to heaven or what will heaven be like? Well, that's when people's beliefs are all over the place. In fact, one researcher summed up his study like this. He said, people today are cutting and pasting religious views about the afterlife from a variety of of different sources, television, movies, conversations with their friends. And the result is that today, heaven is whatever you want it to be. Now, one reason why I believe there is so much disparity 
concerning the real heaven is that many preachers today have just neglected to teach what the Bible actually says about heaven and about hell in favor for what they might call more quote-unquote practical topics. And we do need good practical preaching, but we also need to be reminded that this world is not our home. We're just passing through, and that heaven is our real home. I like what David Jeremiah wrote in one of his books. Listen to this. He said, quote, When the church doesn't have its mind on heaven, it tends to grow indulgent, self-centered, and weak. Our thoughts are consumed by our present needs, and heaven becomes an afterthought. When you forget that God has a prepared place for us where we'll spend eternity, a glorious, wonderful place that's real, not an imaginary state of mind, we begin to try and create our own heaven on earth. We spend money and resources trying to get rid of all of our pain and live in beautiful mansions. We don't live with the sense of judgments and rewards that will one day be issued. Our concern, he says, about personal holiness begins to slip away and we lose our passion for winning others to Christ. When we lose sight of eternity, he said, the culture presses us into its mold, which is a result of the great omission in our preaching today. We have few two sermons about heaven and hell. Well, if you're preaching through the book of Revelation, as we have been this year, you can't ignore either of those. Last week, we talked about the horror of hell, and I'm glad today to tell you that today I'm preaching about the glory of heaven. And what the Bible has dedicated in Revelation 21 and 22 is amazing to our understanding. Here in these two chapters, we get the Apostle John's guided tour of heaven. And we don't have to know everything about heaven, but we can know what God has told us. And when we know what God has told us, it will change the way that we live. And so as we open up Revelation 21 today, I want to point out to you four incredible truths. And the first one is this, number one, I want you to see the geography of heaven. The geography of heaven. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now in these couple of verses here, John points out two important features of heaven's geography. The first that I want you to notice is it's a new creation. And we read there in verse 1 about a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth passing away and the sea being no more. In God's great renovation project, every square inch of this universe that has been tainted by sin is going to be redeemed and restored back to the pristine way that it was in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, before the fall. Think about this, friends. Thorns and thistles will be taken away. Drought and pestilence will have no place in Jesus' restored earth. Natural calamities, hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards and storms will be a distant memory. The curse will be reversed and death and disease and decay will be no more. Friend, that's a good part to say amen about. 
Now, how is God going to do this? 2 Peter chapter 3 explains the way that God is going to bring about this new creation. In verse 10, look at what Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. He continues, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. From time to time, folks ask me, Preacher, do you believe in climate change? Do you believe in the greenhouse effect, global warming? And I always say, yes, of course I do. Uh, the Bible even predicts it. And by that point, most people are pretty surprised, but I always try and point out and say that what I don't mean is the climate change that Al Gore is talking about. I don't mean the greenhouse effect that all of the Democrats and the uh, green tree huggers are talking about. I'm talking about the global warming, the renovation of the earth by fire that the Bible talks about. God remaking the earth and purifying the earth of sin and the curse before Jesus remakes it all and brings about His kingdom on the earth. A new creation. You'll remember the first time that God renovated His creation was when Noah was walking the earth. And you remember that God did that with a huge flood, a global flood. And after the waters subsided and Noah and his family and the animals disembarked from that ark, they looked out and they saw a covenant, a rainbow promise in the sky. God saying, I will never again destroy the earth by way of water. Do you know if you read that covenant in Genesis 9, there's nothing in the fine print about God uh, using fire. And that's going to be the means in the future by which Jesus renovates this earth purifies it, cleanses it, makes it new and habitable for the church and for those who are going to live in eternity with Him. You know, one of the most surprising things that we learn here in this passage about the new earth is in verse 1 it says that the sea was no more. Did you see that? That's difficult to imagine considering the fact that they tell us two-thirds of our earth is water. And some of you may think as you read that, well, that's going to be a disappointment. I like the beach. I like going to the lake. I like deep sea fishing. I like snorkeling in the reefs with the dolphins. But here is an interesting interpretation of this. Stephen Lawson, great preacher of the gospel, he wrote this in a book. Listen to his take on the meaning of this. It sheds a lot of light. He said, To the ancient peoples the sea was frightful and fearsome. An awesome monster, a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea. And on a cloudy day, their ships were absolutely lost without the stars of the sun to guide them. Their frail ships were at the mercy of a tempestuous ocean's fearsome angry storms. And the loss of human life in the sea was beyond calculation. So the sea, he said, represented a vast barrier for nations, continents, and people groups. In other words, what the Bible seems to be indicating to us is that on the new earth, there'll be no such thing as an Atlantic or a Pacific separating humanity into continents. And so the whole earth, it appears, will be inhabitable 
And the sea will not be a barrier about our ability to travel and subdue the creation once again for the glory of God. Another interesting thing to think about when you read this is the hydrologic cycle. You know, the ocean is important for maintaining the earth's weather patterns. We saw that just the past week with Hurricane Dorian. But on the new earth, notice there's not going to be a need for rain because it'll be a perfect earth. There'll be no danger of drought. Furthermore, we'll be living in glorified resurrection bodies that won't need water to sustain life. Imagine a body that never becomes thirsty. Well, the new earth is not a water-based environment, so it's not going to operate by the same natural laws that we know today. And so that's the new creation. But then John also talks about in this passage of the geography of heaven, in verse 2, of a new city. A new city. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven. The description that John gives here implies that this holy city will be prepared. It will be designated. It will be ready made for the new earth. And in fact, we ought to cross-reference this with what Jesus told His disciples in John 14, right before He was about to go to the cross. You remember what He said there? In my Father's house are many mansions... But we're not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am you may be also. Think about it. Jesus Christ has been with His Father for some 2,000 years now preparing a place for you and I. How could it be anything less than astounding? Many scholars who study this passage contend that the New Jerusalem, this glorious city, is, might actually even hover over the earth during the thousand-year reign, during the millennial reign of Jesus. And then after that, it's going to come down and rest on the earth. I don't know about all of that, but I know that living in the New Jerusalem is going to be an awesome thing. I like what the Primitive Quartet, they've got that song that's blessed me so many times. My home sits by a crystal sea on a street of gold. Nothing down here can compare to her beauty, I've been told. It'll never need repairing. It'll last eternally. My old house ain't much to look at, but my home's a sight to see. And so we see the geography of heaven. Then I want to talk to you, number two this morning, about the God of heaven. The God of heaven. Notice what is said here in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Think about it like this, friend. In heaven, Jesus will be the name on everybody's lips and the love in everybody's heart. And seeing God will be like seeing everything new for the first time. Why is that? Because Jesus is heaven's greatest attraction. Our experience of Him will never grow stale. It will never grow routine. We will live in eternity with Christ and never plumb the depths 
of His goodness and His grace and His love and His mercy and His joy. And and think about your relationship with Christ. It will intensify. It will increase. It will broaden. It will become more precious, friend, as the ages roll on. Think of all the brilliant treasures of heaven that we read about the streets of gold. The city four square. We think about the gates of pearl and the crystal sea, the tree of life and so on. All those things are nice, but friend, it's secondary to Jesus. I don't know about you, but the main reason I want to go to heaven is because I want to see my Lord. I want to cast crowns at His feet. I want to sing a new song about His great glory. I want to worship Him. I want to spend time with my Savior. You can have all that other stuff. You just give me Jesus. And this preacher right here will be happy in eternity. Think about it. A heaven without Jesus would be like a bride without a groom. A heaven without Jesus would be like visiting the White House and never meeting the President. Oh, He's heaven's mayor. He's heaven's main attraction. He's the reason I want to go there. Samuel Rutherford, the old Scottish preacher, he said this. He said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and still have Thee, it would be a heaven to me. Thou art all the heaven that I need. I like what this brother said, Martin Luther, a great reformer. He said, I would rather be in hell with Christ than to be in heaven without Him. Jonathan Edwards, remember we talked about him last week, that sermon, sinners in the hands of angry God. But look at what he said about heaven. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness to which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully is to enjoy God, and is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of others are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God, he said, is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the fountainhead. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Friend, we don't even have little puny brains to be able to wrap our minds around being in the presence of a thrice holy God and standing before our risen Savior. What a blessing! The geography of heaven and the God of heaven. But then I want to talk to you also this morning, number three, about the gladness of heaven. The gladness of heaven. Notice verse 4. Oh, what a blessing this is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The happiness of heaven is not only about who's going to be there, but what's not going to be there. There'll be no more dying, no more crying, no more lying, and praise God, no more trying. 
No more funeral homes, no more graveyards, no more hospitals or jails, divorce courts, abortion clinics, or rehab centers. Praise God of what's not going to be there. Perhaps the best of all, the devil's not going to be there to trouble you and tempt you. He's going to be locked up and the key's going to be thrown away, friend. Think about what the poet said. He said, think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven. Of touching a hand and finding it God's hand. Of breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory and finding it's home. That's home. That's where I'm going, friend. That's my hope. That's my home. That's my salvation. And for the redeemed, when they step into that blessed kingdom, Oh, the hands that carved out the river basin and shaped the mountains. It'll be those hands that welcome you home. The same hands that stretched forth the heavens and dotted the, the stars in the sky. It'll be those hands that say, Come and welcome into thy rest. Those same hands that were pierced by those Roman spikes and curled in agony on the cross will cup your face and my face and wipe away every tear and say, Now see what I have made for thee. He'll wipe away your tears forever. Friend, I'm telling you, the first five seconds in heaven is going to wipe away every tear, every heartache, every suffering of this life will be a distant memory. And we'll finally understand it better in the by and by what didn't make sense on the earth. The questions that we asked God, those nights that we stayed up in prayer begging for an answer, the trials that God asked you to go through, the first five seconds in heaven, you'll understand it and you'll see that God's way was the best. And then think of the glad reunions. Oh, friend, we just sang about it. How many of you got somebody on the other side waiting? Somebody that you can't wait to embrace again. Mama or daddy or a husband or a wife or a child or a loved one. Somebody that you used to go to church with. A precious deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a friend. And friend, I'm telling you, what a glad reunion that will be. I'll meet you in the morning by the bright riverside when all sorrow has drifted away. I'll be standing at the portals when the gates open wide at the close of life's long dreary day. I'll meet you in the morning with a how do you do and we'll sit down by the river with rapture when the world is renewed. You'll know me in the morning by the smile that I wear. Oh, friend, when I meet you in the morning in that city built four square. What a blessing today. The gladness of heaven. And I've just given you a little thimble drop. Friend, you're going to be standing under the waterfall. The gladness of heaven. Then let's close today and talk about the government of heaven. Notice verses 6 and 8. And he said to me, It is done. To Telestai, the same utterance that he made from the cross in John 19.30. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage and I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The government of heaven will be the most perfect rule that has ever been established because it will be ruled by a perfect king and the citizens will be perfect subjects. Unlike every society ever established on earth, the citizens of heaven will experience something they've never experienced before, and that is total peace. It's alluded to there in verse 6. Notice the satisfaction to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I worked this weekend in the backyard with my dad and my father-in-law, and we're putting together a playground swing set type thing for our kids. If you were outside yesterday, man, it was hot. And it was dry. There wasn't nothing better than to just take a break and go over to the old garden hose and turn it on and get some of that cold water. Why is water better when it comes out of the garden hose? I don't know. But I can remember, friend, I can remember as a kid mowing grass. And sweating and being so hot. And then I'd go into my papa's house. And he'd have hanging up there beside the sink an old gourd that he'd hewn out. He's just an old mountain man. An old gourd. And I'd pull that gourd off the wall and I'd stick that under the faucet. Let me tell you, that's the best water you've ever put in your body. Straight out of Mount Pisgah. Hand dug well. And you get that gourd full up and tip it over. And man, the water just run down your chin. And it was so good. It was so satisfying. Now take that. And multiply it by a million times a million times a million. The satisfaction of heaven. Jesus says you can come and drink the water that I'm going to give you. And it will be free. Sweet water. Remember what he said in John 7? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers. <laughs> rivers of living water. The eternal life that we will enjoy. Not only quantity, but quality. Complete, lacking in nothing. Totally fulfilled, at peace, at rest. Day's work is done. Toil and strife is over. No more cancer. No more Alzheimer. No more sickness. No more sin or Satan. Just peace in the government of God. He says, I will be His God. And He will be my Son. In other words, you're going to be home. You're going to be home forever. And ever, and you will know God like you have never known Him before. The beatific vision, the happy making sight is what they called it. When you see and behold the joy, the love, the purity of God, and it courses through every cell and molecule and atom of your body, and you are known in that moment completely and totally loved and secure like you've never been here on the earth. You'll know God. Paul said, we're looking now through a dim glass, but one day face to face, face to face, 
I love C.S. Lewis. He described eternity like this. He said, it's chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Are you ready, child of God? Notice verse 8. It's a dark note right there. As for the cowardly, the faithfulest, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. What does this list mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if you've committed any of these sins in your life, then you won't be there. Let me just be honest with you. There ain't going to be no good people in heaven. There's only one perfect person. That's Jesus Christ. Heaven's going to be full of sinners who've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a surprise of who's there and who's not there. Maybe some of the folks that you thought was squeaky clean, they're in that list right there. Maybe some of the people that you thought was just the worthless, worst sinner, washed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What this list describes is sins of people who have never repented and trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And yet because of their unconfessed sin, they will not be allowed into God's sinless city. This is God's city. It's a holy city. And to be part of that blessed fellowship who goes there, you have to wear the right clothes. You say, what do you mean right clothes? Max Lucado tells a story in one of his books about being given a couple of tickets to go and attend the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Now, if you're not a golf fan, let me just catch you up to speed. The Masters Golf Tournament is like the World Series. It's like the Super Bowl of golf. The tickets are hard to come by. And Max Cato said that he had a friend who was a pro golfer who gifted him two tickets to go. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Here's what he said. He said, I went off to the Augusta National Country Club where golf heritage hangs like moss from the trees. The place where legends were made and I was like a kid in a candy shop. He said, as I walked towards the entrance though, a guard stopped me. I showed my pass but the guard shook his head. I told him, look, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a guest of so-and-so, you know, the pro golfer. The guard said, I'm sorry, sir, but your name isn't on the list of caddies and players. And so you can't go any further than this. You can't go into the clubhouse. He said it didn't matter that I was the pastor of a church. It didn't matter that I had offered authored several books. He said, I was turned away right at the entrance because my name wasn't on the list and because I didn't have the right credentials. Then he made this comment. He said, this will happen to many people at the most important place of all, the gates of heaven. They will be turned away because their name isn't recorded in the Lamb's book of life. He said they may be God-fearing and church-attending. They may have a long list of accomplishments. But if they don't know Christ and He doesn't know them, then it's all in vain. He said, as he continued in that story, that later on, Max did get into the clubhouse where the golfers were. You see, his golfer buddy who gave him the tickets 
asked Max to be his caddy for a day. In order to be a caddy at the Masters, you have to wear a special set of white overalls. Maybe you've seen him wearing those. Here's what he said. He said, later that same afternoon, I made my way to the clubhouse. And through the same door, walking past the same guard, I stepped onto the golfing inter sanctum. What made the difference, he said. One day I was turned away. The next I was welcomed. And the change was simple. I was wearing the right clothes. If you and I are ever going to have any hope of stepping into this heavenly city, it will be because we have taken off the old rags of sin and self and have been clothed in the pure holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those sin-stained garments have been removed and we've put on the precious, the precious clothing of our holy Christ and Savior. So what about that list? You see yourself there in verse 8? If you do, here's good news. You can have a wardrobe change today. You can take off those old rags and be made new into the robes that Jesus Christ wants to give you. That new life, that spiritual life, so that one day you too can meet by the river.